And when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. And these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God and Noah and had, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all the flesh had corrupted their, their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 500 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to, the, to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. And everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons and your wife and your son's wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sword into the ark to keep them alive with you. And they shall be male and female, and of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you, into you and to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Amen. Well, we come to a very uh, challenging uh, chapter in, this, in the history of Genesis, some very debated things in this particular chapter. God has created the heavens and the earth. Uh, we saw how sin entered this world through the rebellion of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. Uh, but God gave the promise of a deliverer to come who would redeem them from uh, their, the penalty. And uh, so we see two lines developing, the line of the woman and the line of the serpent. And uh, we saw last week in reviewing the bit of the history of that, how the development in the line of Cain, uh, the line of the serpent, and the development under the line of Seth, uh, the line of the woman of promise. So we come to this section, beginning Noah and his generations and his story and the story of the flood. And the two things that we're going to see in general 
as we go through this section is the um, reality of God's judgment. He is determined to pour out his wrath upon mankind whom he had created because of the sin they polluted the the earth. And uh, along with that, though, we see God's mercy and grace. And so those are the two things I really want to draw your attention tonight to the progression of wickedness and the preparation of the ark. We'll get into the details of the preparation of that, but just the fact of the preparing an ark for the deliverance of men. Now, when we come to the story of Noah, he is a, almost in a sense, a second Adam. Now, he's not the second Adam, that is the New Testament refers to, which is Christ. Uh, but he's a, he points us ahead to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is a Christ figure. He's, so he's kind of a second Adam. He's a, a new creation, a new life, a new world will begin under him. And uh, he prefigures Christ, who would be the ark that would, will, you, will rescue us from our calamity. And Dr. Van Gemmeren suggests these parallels between the first Adam and, and Noah. And I want to give these to you because I think it's helpful for us to kind of get a general perspective of uh, what we're reading here. Uh, he writes, their worlds are created out of a watery chaos. Uh, the phrase, the image of God figures prominently in both the story of the first Adam and Noah. They both walked with God. They both exercised dominion over the animals, Adam by naming them, uh, Noah by preserving them. Uh, God's command to be fruitful and multiply were given both to the first Adam and to Noah as well. Uh, they both worked the ground. Uh, they both sin in connection with food, Adam by eating, Noah by drinking. And uh, both of their sins resulted in shame uh, they have sons, and both of them have sons that represent the two lines. Uh, you have uh, Cain from the first Adam and Ham under, the sec- on, under Noah, and you have uh, Seth under the first Adam and Shem under Noah. And from these two lines, you see the continuing development of the line of the woman and the line of the serpent. And so the first section, the first theme, idea I want us to think about and develop and work our way through the text is the progression of wickedness. Uh, There is a universal corruption that develops and God's determination to judge uh, by sending a flood. And so we see the beginning of this development of sin in verses one and two, it says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land or the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Now there are three basic points of view on what that means. One is that these sons of God are tyrannical rulers uh, who, um, uh, have have authority, and so they take wives of whoever they want to have, and they um, build their harems 
uh, in a, a kind of a forceful way. The, um, the second one that has a lot of popularity is that the sons of God are angels and these angels are intermarrying with humans and um, taking wives of whomever they wanted, angels inter- intermarrying with men. And there's probably, that's a reasonably popular view in some circles. Um, there are problems with that point of view. Uh, Jesus said in when we go to glory, we'll be like the angels, neither marrying nor giving in marriage. And there are some other issues with certain texts that are used to support that. But that is a view. But for me personally, and what I think is most helpful in trying to understand the context and the text is to remember the context. Remember the book of uh, the Bible as a whole and Genesis in particular. It's a covenantal book. And what it's presenting to us is the progression and development of the covenant. And as we've been seeing that um, Adam and Eve were given that promise uh, when God curses the serpent that I, he would put enmity between the serpent and the woman, between the serpent seed and the woman's seed. And it's God's design in the covenantal outworking plan. It's God's design for God's people uh, to follow the antithesis. <clears throat> it's part of the, there's three promises in that Genesis 3.15. There's, that there's an antithesis between the, uh, the serpent and the woman. And, and there's a continuity. That antithesis is still to continue between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And then the wonderful key promise is that one of the sons of the woman will be the Messiah. But it's the antithesis. God wants you and I as Christians to be different than our world. He wants us to live in a godly, righteous life in this world and not to look like the world or adopt the practices of the world or adopt their priorities. And the covenantal background to all this, to me, uh, communicates what, what is happening. It's the people of God were rejecting the antithesis. They didn't want to live as God had demanded of them. And so the sons of God, that is the line of the woman, saw the daughters of men, the line of the serpent. And they were attractive. Maybe they were allured by all the, the achievements that the line of Cain had accomplished. But they took whomever they wished. They refused to marry in the line that they were called to marry on. They were, they were refused to honor the antithesis the redemptive plan that God had for them. And because of that was the cultivation and the development, an even greater development of sin. The progression of sin was going to be going on anyway through the line of the serpent, but now the mingling and the blurring of the lines and the mingling of the lines, the progression of sin was going to go even faster 
and accumulate even greater. And it's Satan's desire to blur the distinction between the Christian and the non-Christian. It's part of his plan for us to love the world and the things in the world. But we're warned that the those who do that, the love of the Father is not in them. And so we have this, uh, this rejection of the plan of God for them to honor the antithesis. And so the progression of sin is going to develop. Well, then we have this strange verse in verse 4. It says, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. Now, uh, this is quite an interesting uh, verse too. Who are the Nephilim? Why in the world did Moses bring these people up? Well, one of the theories, well, let me back up before I get to that. So the only other time in the whole Bible that this word is used is in Numbers 13. So go ahead and turn there for a minute, if you would. Numbers 13, it's after the spies had gone in to spy out the land to see whether it was good for Israel to invade. And and the, the Nephilim is in verse 33, but let's pick it up at verse 32. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report. These are the 10 spies. Remember, Joshua and Caleb gave a good report. So they brought to the people of Israel, uh, the 10, a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there, were, there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who, came, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed, and so we seemed to them. So these Nephilim were giant-sized people. Now, I don't mean giant like 100 feet tall. I mean a giant like 9 to 10, 12. Some speculation is that somewhere as many as 12 to 20 feet tall, but um, I mean, that's not documented. But they were big. They were, they, and that's why the, new, the, the King James Version and the New King James Version, when you come back to Genesis 6, 4, don't say Nephilim. That's the Hebrew word. They say the giants were on the earth in those days and also afterward. Now, one of the theories is that the angels that intermarried with humans produced this race of giant people. And uh, that's who the Nephilim were, according to one point of view. But that's not what the text is saying. The text isn't, is not telling us the Nephilim were the product of that intermarriage, whoever intermarried. The text says the Nephilim were, we might say, were already on the earth in those days. And they are also afterward, after what? After when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bore children to them. So before this intermarrying started and after it had done its work, the Nephilim were there. 
<clears throat> well, why in the world did Moses bring these people up if they're not a part of the, uh, the mess that's being created? It's because they uh, are the epitome of the development of wickedness, or they become that. In the NIV study Bible, in the note, it brings up what the meaning of the word Nephilim is. <clears throat> it says, um, the note says, the Nephilim were people of great size and strength. The Hebrew word means fallen ones. In men's eyes, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. But in, the eye, but in God's eyes, they were sinners, fallen ones, ripe for judgment. So I think Moses is including this mention of them in the text as he's presenting the progression of wickedness in the earth to the point where God's going to judge the entire world <clears throat> because he wants to give us a, an example of, of those who have fallen because the root of Nephilim is to fall. That this is the, a picture of the fallen ones who were of great size and strength and men felt they were men of renown. They were famous people. But in God's eyes, they were great, not in deeds, but in wickedness. And so the Nephilim helps us, I think, continue the story of the corruption. Just as a, almost kind of an aside, it's not that the Nephilim only lived at that time <clears throat> There are sightings of large people throughout history. Goliath uh, was uh, nine feet, four inches tall, something like that. I did uh, a, a, a quick Google search and uh, of course Wikipedia came up and they have 57 pages of talking about giants. The one that I, well, of course I didn't know him or anything. I remember seeing pictures of him is a fellow by the name of, in the United States, Robert Wadlow, um, lived from 1918 to 1940. Very sad, only 22 years old when he died. He was documented <clears throat> as eight feet, 11 inches. And uh, according to the Guinness, Guinness Book of World Records, he's the tallest human in recorded history. Um, there are others, it goes on to list a whole lot, but they're not just ancient occurrences. I remember seeing a picture just this week of a Chinese giant of a man um, from 1870. But even in, in, in of course, Wadlow was in the 20th century. Uh, there's a, a fellow in Vietnam who died in 2019, who... Um, was measured after he was dead, post-mortem, at nine feet, uh, in uh, nine feet and a quarter inches, not nine feet and a quarter inch tall, though when he was alive, he was measured at about, about eight and a half feet. And um, there's a whole list of other people living in recent centuries. Um, but why that still brings us back to the question, why did Moses bring this up? <clears throat> why did he even mention it? And as I quoting from that um, note, I think it's to show the uh, 
the greatness of wickedness. There's an interesting play on the word <clears throat> men of renown. Uh, the word renown, men of, can, could, look, could be translated men of the name. Uh, when you read in the Bible that uh, it's Shem, a name, uh, when you read in the Old Testament, when you, earlier chapters that so and so, such a person was named so and so, they uh, that's you're looking at that derivation of that word, and we have here these are men of renown in wickedness, but uh, the concept can also be there in righteousness that there God wants men of renown, men of the name the name of God, the name of Christ. They want us to be not physically tall, but spiritually large. And uh, we can think of people that have been in, made an impression in our lives that are great men uh, for God. Well, to continue the progression of sin, in verse five, we have the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's this total depravity of man that's being unveiled in this chapter. Uh, skip down to verse 11 and 12. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Moses is painting a picture along with this. Uh, pronouncement of judgment of the description of the wickedness of men, the total depravity of man and the growth of that wickedness in this world. And uh, men are totally depraved. And sadly, the flood is not going to change that. Something else will have to uh, turn uh, over to Genesis 8, 21. Genesis 8.21. This is after the flood. And we have uh, it, uh, Moses writing here. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, that's of uh, Noah's sacrifice, the Lord said in his heart, <clears throat> I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I strike again. Uh, ne- will, will I ever strike again? Uh, down every again strike down every living creature as I have done. You and I cannot um, remove our depravity. God has to do that, and even the judgment of the flood and wiping out all uh, mankind except for Noah and his family won't change the fact that man is at root sin, sinful. And without the God's work of his Holy Spirit, without grace, we have no hope. And we're going to see that grace here in just a moment. <clears throat> so then coming back to verse three. So we have that description of the depravity of man and the, the progression of wickedness. And what's God going to do? Well, God's going to pronounce, God pronounces judgment in verse three. We have then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever or not um, strive with man forever. For he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. And again, there's a couple different points of view on what he's, what's t- being talked about. There are those who think what 
God is saying is he's going to reduce the age, the length of uh, the life of men to 120 years. <clears throat> and um, that doesn't really fit with the rest of the story of Noah and the post-Diluvian people. They still live for a long time. And it, it doesn't match really the progression because men, some men might live 120 years, but it gets to the point where men aren't living even 100 years. And the psalmist, by the time of the psalmist in Psalm 90, uh, verse 10, says that if we have 70 or 80 years, uh, we're doing well. And even those are full of ter- uh, toil and sorrow. So I don't incline to that point of view that it's the decrease of man's age, even though they they will be from what had happened before the flood. <clears throat> but uh, I think it's that God's going to give men 120 years. There's a limited time he's going to have to repent and to turn to God, to turn away from the wickedness that he has before here, before them here, this progression of wickedness. And um, in a, with, within 120 years or in 120 years, he's going to pour out his wrath upon men. And it's a, a vivid reminder that we don't know the number of our days and we need to be ready to meet the Lord at any moment, at any time. <clears throat> and uh, one, of the, one of these days, God's will for the end of our life will come. Uh, Jack Peterson is minister most of you didn't get to know in uh, ROPC in San Antonio. He's with the Lord but he, would, he was a regular speaker at youth camp. And one of the things he would say <clears throat> many times when he's speaking to the young people, he would ask them the question, how old do you have to be to die? And let that kind of hang in their minds for a little while. And then he would share a story about a funeral of an infant that he had just performed. You don't have to be very old to die. And God is saying, there's a limited amount of time. You need to get things taken care of with God uh, before the creator and the preserver becomes the destroyer. In verse six and seven, we're told, and the Lord regretted or repented that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. It's an alarming text to some. They're kind of shocked that God would repent. Doesn't the Bible say in other texts that God is not a man that he should repent, nor the son of man that he should repent? be lie or be false. And that's true. God doesn't change. What Moses is doing and what's being presented to us here using an anthropomorphism that is describing God's actions in the terminology of men. You and I repent. You and I have passions. God's immutable and unchangeable. And there's very important truths to that. 
But what's being communicated to here is that God is, is uh, going to make a change, at least in our view of him. God had planned this from before the foundation of the world. But at this point, God is changing and he, in that sense, repents or turns back from what he is planning to do. It's not that the character of God or the person of God changes, but God's work in men and for on mankind is changing from our point of view. And he's going to um, blot out men from the face of the earth. And just skipping down a couple of verses, it's a universal judgment in verse 13. And God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with uh, them with the earth. In verse 17, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. So we have this progression of wickedness and it's a very black moment, a black time. You and I might think, well, didn't God promise to send a Messiah? What's going to happen to his promises? Uh, What can come good can come out of any of this? And in the darkness, God brings light. And the one thing you and I can count on among, above everything else is that God will keep his promise. So even though he's pronounced judgment, God will fulfill his promise and his son will come. And where do we see the light coming? Well, we see it in the preparation for the ark. We see it in the work of grace. In uh, verse eight, we're told after God's saying he's going to judge, it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It wasn't something that Noah could achieve. It wasn't something Noah could do. It wasn't something Noah could earn. It It wasn't anything that he could accomplish. But God in his mercy and his grace gave his favor to Noah. And he was going to give grace to him and use him as an instrument of grace for the saving of many people. The effect of that grace in his life is what we see in verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And there are those who say, well, it's because Noah was righteous that God had favor on him, but that's getting the cart before the horse. You won't go anywhere with that. No, grace comes first. And out of grace grows righteousness and faith. It's you become a Christian and then by God's grace, then you live as God wants you to live in this world. And that was true in Noah's case as well. God didn't save us. Moses will later say he didn't save Israel because they were better than any nation on earth. It was because God loved them that he redeemed them. See, the love of God comes first and the redemption comes first. Then it's going to the promised land. And the same thing is true with Noah. 
Grace came first. And he lives out that grace. What is his walking? Of course, he wasn't perfect. Blameless doesn't mean he was perfect. It means that he lived a whole godly life in his generation. What are some of the characteristics of his um, life as a righteous man? He walked with God. It's the same word, same terminology used of Enoch. Enoch walked with God. And he was not, for God took him. He was, uh, the New Testament, Peter tells us, he was a preacher of righteousness. <clears throat> we are not given a sermon of his. We don't know what he said, but we can imagine he's warning people of the judgment to come, warning them to flee the wrath to come, and um, uh, announcing that. Uh, he was given a, a, char- a, chore, a charge to build an ark, so he had to practice what he preached when we... When we say flee the wrath to come, we need to practice it ourselves and embracing that and living that. In his case, it was building an ark, which would have been a very challenging thing. Probably an object of ridicule uh, because we don't know for sure. But the indication from Genesis 2, 6 is that rain, it hadn't rained yet. Um, that um, the earth was watered by the mist that God had brought up from the ground. Perhaps it had rained and the text just doesn't tell us, but he's building, and he's not building a small boat. He's building an ocean liner size boat. I'm going to come back and talk about that uh, more next time. It's, uh, It's 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, had a water displacement that was, it's an ocean liner size of a boat. And uh, it would have taken, it took him, uh, some speculate, 70 years to build the thing. So a long time. Uh, Hebrews tells us, by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And you can picture it kind of dramatically. Every blow of the hammer in building that ark was a, a war, another sound of the warning. Judgment's coming. And a warning for people to be alert to that. Well, that's the progression of sin and the preparation of an ark, which will be the place of salvation. <clears throat> and just to kind of summarize a few things uh, real quickly... And that is, even though there will no, no, not be a universal flood again, uh, there will be another universal judgment to come. And uh, you can go back and read in Second Peter about the day that will come when God will um, judge the world uh, with fire and consume it. And so you and I <clears throat> can't be indifferent or ignorant that there is a day of wrath yet to come and to be ready for that. And how are we ready for that? Well, Noah was called on to provide a means of salvation through the judgment of the flood. And he was going to build this ark of this wood and he was going to cover it with pitch inside and out. And he and his family were going to get in the ark and God would shut the door. And that boat covered with pitch inside and out protected 
Noah and his family from the wrath of God, the, the waters of God's judgment. Well, you and I also have an ark. It's not a boat. It's a person. And Jesus Christ is our ark. We take refuge in him. And we're not covered with pitch on the outside and the inside, but we're covered and surrounded by the blood of Christ. And when that fiery wrath of God is one day poured out, so you and I are surrounded and protected from that wrath by the blood of Christ. We're protected in him. He's our, our, our ark. He's our place of protection. He's the one that will guard us and keep us safe in the time of God's ultimate wrath. And so you and I be sobered by the warnings, but be greatly encouraged and comforted by the place of safety that God has provided for us and flee to Christ for that safety. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this story of Noah and the, the, uh, the flood. We grieve when we read of the progression of wickedness in the world at that time. And we know that even in our own world, we see that same progress of wickedness. And we know that you have reserved the world for your, the judgment of your fiery wrath on the last day. I pray, O oh Lord, for each of us here and for uh, those we seek to reach out to, that they would find their uh, refuge in Christ and uh, that they would be covered by his blood and thus say, made safe uh, in the day of wrath. And may you just encourage us with that as we walk through the, <clears throat> our lives day by day, that we would live not only in that hope, but also with the grace that you've given to us that we might live lives full of grace and truth in this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.